Hey, this is Josh Edge, and right off the bat, I should say this is not a new episode of the Iditapod, and what I'm about to tell you has absolutely nothing to do with mushing. But we wanted to share a different podcast we think you'll like. It's done by Iditapodsters Ben Matheson and Zachariah Hughes, along with Emily Kwong of KCAW in Sitka, and Vikram Patel, one of the producers of Arctic Entries here in Anchorage. Zach, you want to explain? Yes. This is the first episode we're putting out of a podcast called Long Line, which is about human stories from the wilds of Alaska. We've been working on it a long time, and this first episode is about remote military radar stations scattered all around the state. We wanted to know what it's like working in solitary locations with crews of just three or four people for months at a time. We've got another episode in the works about an eccentric veterinarian on an island in southeast Alaska, which should be done in a few weeks. This first story is about a half hour long, and you can hear it by going to longline.org or just keep listening right here, because we're going to play it now. Welcome to Longline, exploring the human story from the wilds of Alaska. I'm Emily Kwong in Sitka. And I'm Zachariah Hughes uh, in Anchorage. Both of us are public radio reporters, and usually we're the ones that are asking the questions. But Em, I'm just I'm curious for you, when you leave the state and head down to the lower 48, what the most common questions you get about Alaska are. You know, I get a lot of, is it cold? Are there polar bears there? I do get asked, do you live in igloos? But I actually live in a rainforest, in a house. It's very normal. You know, do you have people asking you about dog sleds? I do. And I actually, I report on sled dogs and mushing. And so I kind of revel whenever I get that question, because for me, that's that's just a conversation starter. What's the most annoying, though, misconception that you get? Oh, usually pretty quickly in the conversation, some version of this line will inevitably come up. And I can see Russia from my house. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that line haunts me, too. That immortal line from governor-turned-vice-presidential-candidate Sarah Palin. Right? Well, no. Uh, that, that line actually was said by Tina Fey on oh, Saturday Night Live. Right. But it's definitely kind of seared into people's memory of the 2008 presidential campaign. Yeah. And it put Alaska on the map in a weird way. But I always thought it was a little ridiculous, to be honest. I mean, you can't see Russia from my house. No, not from your house. But there is a kernel of truth in it. Uh, There's places in Alaska where on a really, really clear day, you actually can see Russia. And that's part of why Alaska got built up during the Cold War and back during World War II. What was once the impassable Arctic now provides the quickest routes for attack from a wide sector of Europe and Asia. This is from a movie that I found from the 50s, just searching around YouTube. Uh, It's this gentle piece of Cold War propaganda about these remote military sites that were built up all across Alaska. Interesting. Okay. So what were these bases for? They were an early warning system. So the idea was that you would have these places in uh, far-flung locations around Alaska, and they'd be able to detect missiles and long-range bombers that might have been streaming over the poles, and they'd be able to kind of relay that information back to the lower 48 as an early warning bell system. Okay, so spying on Russia, like, just in case of an attack or something. 
Yeah, I mean, definitely there were some installations that were specifically for listening to what was happening in Russia, but these were more like tripwires way out in the distance to catch stuff that might have been coming through the air. Hmm. You know why this is interesting to me, too? It seems like back during the Cold War, a lot of time and money was spent anticipating an attack. Oh, my gosh. So much time and so much money. And just years of people's lives keeping these places staffed. And what happened to them? The Cold War's over, so where are these bases now? Uh, a lot of them are still out there. In the U.S. and in Canada and even a lot of islands way out in the Pacific, uh, these places still exist. Wow. And actually, M, I went to one. So you can just go to these military bases? You can just traipse there on a jet plane? Uh, no. I I spent about nine months coordinating with the Air Force. Right. And, this is the military, after all. And when I finally was able to go, it was pretty short. I was only able to be on the ground for about three hours. Okay. So you went on the military's terms. What was it like? It was really, really far out there. Because of some dicey weather, the Air Force wasn't sure which site we'd be flying to until we were actually walking out onto the tarmac. The pilot literally looked down at his paperwork to double-check before letting us know we were headed to Cape Romanzov, about 500 miles northwest at the edge of the Bering Sea. Our little plane circles over a bunch of the clouds, gets a window, punches through, gliding in low to the gravel runway, and our ride is waiting for us. His name's Bradley Hines. Hey, Guzman, how's it going? Hey, what's up, man? He's a maintenance contractor at Cape Romanzov, and he works a lot. One of his duties is clearing the several miles of road, which in the winter, when it snows, means 8 to 14 hours of plowing a day. To let you know how much snow we get, that's the winter road right there. That's the summer road. This will be completely covered in snow. I mean, this will be like 8, 10 feet deep right here. The whole Romanzov site is made up of three separate areas. A giant white golf ball on a hill where the radar lives, above two orange domes and an airstrip. From up above, the road looks like loose twine tying all the different pieces together. So what are those domes that we're coming up on? The one closest to us is the is the vehicle maintenance dome. The one on the other side of it is the residential dome. It's where we live. It looks like the experimental compound you'd build to practice colonizing the moon. We stop at the dome homes to change trucks and are handed off to a stocky guy who looks both intelligent and slightly bored. He's Max Jones. This is Cape Romanzov weather, yes. We have a saying here, come because you have to, stay because the weather won't let you out. Max drives us up to the radar site. It's steep, with sharp turns every few dozen feet. A lot of times in the wintertime, there's eight feet in front of the windshield that I can't see. And I have to open the door and use the side of the road as my gauge. The drive is scary. We're surrounded by thick fog, and it's impossible to see the other truck, even just a few feet ahead of us. It's bumpy, muddy, and feels like if we miss one of the hairpin turns, the truck will just lurch over the edge of a cliff. I know my job is to ask Max as many questions as I can, but I am terrified to be dividing his attention in any way. The only thing keeping me from full-on hyperventilating is how totally chill Max is. One hand on the shifter, the other slouched over the steering wheel, like this is just any backcountry road. I can't see, but are these uh, like sheer uh, faces on this mountain here that uh, we're yeah, driving? This is an old old volcano. Uh, when we get up here at the top, you can see a little bit, but it's 3,200 feet straight down right there. We're on a volcano for a reason. 
On sites like this were being built in the 50s, locations were picked for a combination of remoteness, elevation, and weather conditions. We didn't want the Soviets to know where the radars were. So not only were they put in the middle of nowhere, but the weather sucked, too. And the military did acknowledge just how dangerous, cold, and lonely it was to work here. Radar deployments were considered hardship postings, lasting just a single year instead of the customary three in Alaska. The only connection to the outside world were mail planes that frequently got weathered out. In the 50s and 60s, these places required hundreds of Air Force personnel, people to cook, clean, fix machinery, watch the radar screens. At its peak, Romanzov was home to 280 people. Through most of the year, locked in bitter cold and almost endless darkness. In the short summers, a swamp-like morass. In old photos, guys in bomber jackets and buzz cuts stare morosely at empty radar terminals, exhibiting the kind of pathological boredom that airmen bemoaned in letters home. A promotional film put a cheerier face on the situation. You worked through the morning and broke for a good lunch. Then, back to work. The Air Force built bowling alleys, movie theaters, even ski lifts, accommodations to basically dilute the tedium, like some sort of summer camp by the sea ice. After dinner, it was each man to his own pleasure. Perhaps you preferred a rousing game of table tennis, no quarter given. Or there was that other fine intellectual pastime called poker. A lot of the fun stuff's been ripped out since the sites were turned over to private contractors beginning in the 70s. The footprint reduced and reduced and reduced some more. Until now, Arctic, the current contractor, has just four employees to keep the radar spinning at Romanzov. Barely enough for even a decent poker game. You'd think it'd be lonely, boring, depressing. But Max Jones, he doesn't see it that way. Yeah, I did 20 years in the Navy. Being out on a remote side doesn't bother me. But it's not for everybody. The vast majority, 85% of the people who work at the long-range radar sites are ex-military. Max used to handle weapon systems on board ships, and that involves a lot of radars, like the one we're climbing toward. But it's not just the familiarity of the job that he likes. It's the variety of the work itself. Tinker with sensitive equipment on Tuesday, plow snow off the edge of the world Wednesday. And it's good money. A guy like Max can make upwards of $140,000 a year before overtime. The work is great. Probably the best job I've ever had. There's so much variety in in the day-to-day job. But still, you have to be willing to leave your home for months at a time, living in a kind of busy yet antisocial environment that I think most people would have trouble coping with. Arctic screens for this. Nowadays, techs are hired in part because they can stay on the solitude. During the interview process, one of the one of the questions they ask routinely is, "Do you have a problem working in remote sites?" Because there, there's a lot of people that hire on with the company, and then they find out that they can't handle the isolation. By now, we're at the top of the hill, and everyone spills out of the trucks. Finally, we're at the giant golf ball, which, I'm told, keeps the real radar underneath protected from the elements. Next to it is a rusty shack. It used to house the tram system where people would commute back and forth to the radar. And just the idea of ascending several thousand feet in an antique ski lift is the only thing more terrifying to me than the drive we just did. We trudge up a narrow hallway with floorboards worn unnaturally smooth, like an old gym floor. Okay, I'm about to enter restricted area. I'll be your escort. There's no photography inside the restricted area. 
and I I don't have to have physical visualization of the Air Force guys, but the two civilians I've got to have eye, eye contact with you at all times. The radar room has some equipment the military would prefer to keep relatively secret. So no photos, no videos, but I am allowed to keep recording. I was expecting the bridge from Star Trek, but it was way more dull, like the basement of a fax machine company. We even had to sign an official ledger at the door. And I'll, I'll be, I'll sign in as your escort. Max gave us a tour, and to be honest, the technical particulars were a little hard for me to follow. But it was the happiest that I saw Max all day. This whole office belongs to me. All around us is machinery that's nondescript, but presumably of critical importance to national security. To me, however, it all looks like filing cabinets and refrigerators. Instead, my eyes wander to something I can actually relate to, a toilet tucked in a closet. Turns out it's part of an emergency apartment in case techs get stranded up here. Max says it happened to one of the techs at a site called Tin City not too long ago because the rickety 1950s jalopy tram broke. Tin City, the tech, tech got stuck up there for almost two weeks this year because the piston bully was broke. Because the, the part in the thing was, was, was broken or because it was... The, they couldn't run the piston bully up and down the mountain. And during the wintertime at Tin City, that's the only way to get up and down. But they took him up, dropped him off, and it broke on the way back up. And by the time they got parts out and stuff, he was up there almost two weeks. By now, we're on the second floor, laid out as a circle with a donut hole in the center. Max points up into the void. That's the mission. Everybody else out here, is here to support that thing that goes around above your head. The the plane they came in that you came in on, its mission is to support that radar. All the techs and the military guys, they get a hint of reverence in their voice, explaining the real, actual, physical radar, the shrine around which this whole remote temple is built. You can actually see the bottom of the radar turning. See a white wagon wheel up there? Yeah. That, that's the bottom gear plate of the radar. It's too dark inside the golf ball dome to make out details. I can see a play of shadows as long strips of metal rotate evenly. But for all the money and effort it takes to keep this machine running, I kind of wish it were more remarkable. Instead, it's basically like staring up at a ceiling fan when you can't fall asleep. But amid the quiet spin, it's invisibly sending out pulses that move a mile and 12 millionths of a second. Speeds that are physically possible, but mentally ungraspable. The turning of this wagon wheel probes the sky 250 miles in every direction, creating a sort of macro visibility no eye or telescope could glimpse. It's looking for bombers, for planes that have veered far off course, but more often it picks up the happenstance of the sky. Clouds, small commuter flights, even flocks of birds. We take a quiet last look before retracing our steps to the truck. The techs get them warmed up, then poke around the perimeter of the building to inspect a few things. You know, as long as they're up here. In spite of this great mass of technology plopped on the edge of a defunct volcano, none of the techs actually know what they're seeing. The radar is just an eyeball. It's not the brain interpreting an image. That happens in Anchorage, where all the data is beamed and a small platoon of service members decides what to do with it. 
A few times a year, Russian jets will fly over international airspace toward the U.S. Their aim is to see how long it takes the military in Alaska to get permission from faraway commanders to scramble F-22 fighter planes. It's a cat and mouse game, testing how fast your opponent can get their jet fighter up and running. It was described as routine. I walk down the road into the fog, which has somehow gotten even denser. There's no sound other than the wind. And it's a strange feeling, knowing that in the middle of the quiet, cool air are the silent vibrations of a vast machinery, a whole system of nerve endings probing the sky for sensation and pulsing deep signals to a distant brain. So that's what you went out there for, to get a peek inside the mysterious giant golf ball. <laughs> uh, that was part of it, yeah. I, def- I definitely wanted to see what all the fuss was about. Sure. But the Defense Department spends tens of millions of dollars just keeping these places going. And what I wanted to find out was a little bit more, you know, who wants to work at a place like this? Yeah, that, that interests me, too. I wonder where Brad watches movies, right? Does he watch movies? Yeah, Did yeah, they, they have do... a whole movie setup thing place. There's even a popcorn machine. So when he's not plowing roads, let's say, um, what does he do? What do people do when they're not working? People who are at there are kind of always working, right? Like, they stay at these far-flung places, and it's not their home, and they have to make sure that these radars keep functioning. And that's kind of, that's a choice that we've made politically. You know, it's it's a decision from policymakers to pay to keep people out there. And we don't have to do it that way. Canada, for example, has similar radars. They do not do it that way. If something goes wrong, they send somebody out there to go and fix it. But in the U.S., we don't. We have people living there year round, checking the equipment, plowing the roads. And right beside those people, the Max Joneses are the ones who feed them and arrange for supplies to be shipped out. And And that's the role that I was really curious about. But why is it important for the military to send those other people, the the helpers? Because that labor is just as important to keeping the sites running, to be honest. I mean, employees generally aren't happy if they're not comfortable. And these people are out there for like months and months at a time. So you need to keep them well fed and modestly entertained and well rested. And they can't be singularly focused on the radars, on on that specific task, if they're also having to spend thought energy on the logistics of groceries and, you know, re-upping on laundry detergent. Who is that person? When Max is out plowing all day and checking on the radar, who makes him lunch? Lita Page. Lita Page makes Max lunch. How you doing, darling? After the radar visit, we go back to the dome home, and inside is Lita, a spunky grandma with a baseball hat and a smart remark. I'm going to smack the piss out of him if he aggravates me too much. And he'd do the same for me. No. <laughs> Lita's getting ready to serve lunch, and it's kind of a hectic scene. Because even though there's usually just four people living here, right now the site's hosting about 20 environmental workers who are doing some seasonal cleanup work nearby. Which means Lita is essentially in charge of feeding a football team three times a day. I have corn chowder, there's vegetable lo mein, baked beans, macaroni and cheese, barbecue beef and chicken and 
beer-battered halibut. After everyone eats, the leftovers are put away and the industrial kitchen is wiped down, Lita shows me around, starting with her assortment of walk-in freezers. I keep my cheeses here, um, frozen bread dough, french fries. How much bacon is that? Um, they're about 20 pound lot, so. That's a, but it is a lot of bacon. Uh, no. <laughs> These guys eat a lot of bacon. There are a couple more freezers upstairs for longer term storage. Where we're standing is just for stuff that's gonna get eaten relatively soon. And actually, given where we are, several thousand miles from anything resembling a temperate growing environment, there is a respectable variety of produce. And you know, we have celery and avocados and broccoli, all of the normal normals. Lita falls somewhere between an army quartermaster and the owner of a bed and breakfast. She sends Arctech a shopping list of all the things she needs, and every three weeks, they send her back a plane loaded up with groceries. There's actually enough food on site to last for months, although the further along you get, the more stuff comes out of cans and the back of the freezer. It's not a hypothetical. Lita's gone a month and a half without a plane. Yeah, we didn't have any groceries, anything fresh. I have plenty of food frozen, but nothing fresh. So I told the guys if they wanted milk, they had to go out to the barn and milk the cow. And if they wanted any eggs, they had to go down to the beach and get the seagull eggs down there. That was the closest thing to eggs they were getting from me. But yeah, it's, um, you become very creative. Just to be clear, there are no cows at Romanzov. And while seagull eggs are edible, that part was a joke too. We leave the kitchen and walk through the dining area. Dangling below the railing are green vines. They belong to spider plants, creepers, bamboo. Some of them were here before, but others Lita brought out herself during visits to Anchorage, where her family lives. She got kind of mischievous, explaining where the plants came from, looking around to make sure nobody was in earshot before whispering, I stole this from the Denisov. <laughs> it was one piece. I got some going here. The girl says, Oh, I guess you can have some. You bring me magazines. So you can have some of that plant. And is the point of the plants, is that just because they're, they're pretty and you like growing things? Yeah, that's good for you. you got to breathe this air. The rumor I'd heard about the radar sites was that the technicians were fed lavishly with regular steak and lobster dinners. And this is something that Arctic is understandably sensitive about because they work off of a federal contract. And it's generally frowned upon to use taxpayer money for lobster tails. And the rumor turns out to be false, except for on holiday meals, when the techs get to pick a fancy dish like crab legs or shrimp. But the rest of the time, they're at the mercy of Lita, who embraces a my way or the highway approach to meals. I'll be the mama. <laughs> we cross over into the second dome, and suddenly it's like being inside a Home Depot. Cement floors, glaring lights, and metal racks filled with every possible supply you could ever need. Just looking at it all, makes me want to drive a forklift. Well, you know, some, like I said, sometimes we don't get a plane in for quite a while. And then people like me are hoarders. <laughs> the techs need to have a spare part for every possible thing that could break. The nearest village is 15 miles away by boat or snow machine, which in bad weather might as well be another country. There's a spare generator, rows of paint, the carcass of an old washing machine that could still be scavenged for a few parts. There's even an extra eyewash station resting against a shelf. And this well-appointed warehouse gives Lita no small amount of pleasure. Back in behind here, I have blinds for the windows. <laughs> and I have some 
mattresses and, and there's some rugs back here. See those black round things? Those are mattresses. There's more food and material here than in entire stores I've been to in rural villages. Except instead of servicing communities of several hundred, this is just for several, full stop. There's a section in my notes from this point in the trip that reads simply, there's just so much stuff. And this is the sort of contingency planning for every possible calamity that the military stresses. Be prepared for the worst constantly. Except instead of a battlefield, here it's applied to living at a remote outpost for months with regular assaults from the elements. For Lita, the comprehensiveness isn't just about security, but also pride. Do you feel more comfortable when there's yes. extra supplies? Yes. Why? I don't have to fight for it. You know, sometimes there's no money and you don't get what you, what you need a lot of times. So You take when you get the opportunity. You got it. You can't stream Netflix at Ramanzoff. Since the 50s, the Air Force has flown out books, magazines, and movies from a library on base. And that's evolved into a media room with DVDs, a Nintendo Wii, and a popcorn machine that Lita bought herself. It breaks up the monotony sometimes. The internet here is decent enough for Facebook and phone calls. And I get the sense that Lita's like a lot of grandmothers who subsist on communicating digitally with their grandkids until they can squeeze them in real life. Lita's got a house in Anchorage, and when she talks about it, she says she lives there. A term I find a little bit funny, given she spends three quarters of the year in a glorified communal yurt. Her husband passed away a few years ago, but even before that, she was working out at a remote base on Shemya, one of the furthest flung of all the Aleutian Islands. The site was much bigger than this one, but demanded a similar split of time, with months-long shifts punctuated by months-long reprieves, something Lita says actually helped her marriage. Well... I probably would have killed him if I was at home with him 24-7. Or he would have killed me, one or the other. Actually, it was right nice. Um, because then when I was off, we got to do more things. When Lita's husband got sick, she moved back to Anchorage for a while. And after he passed, she put in an application with Arctic and started rotating between radar sites until she got permanent status here at Ramanzov. I asked her if she ever feels lonely how she copes with the solitude, but she just shrugged it off. I don't need them to entertain me, and they don't need me to entertain them. It's a community of loners. They join for meals, a few activities, but mostly everyone here is able to take care of themselves. All right, I'm a piddler, and I find something to do all the time. But, uh, yeah, we stay pretty busy here, and I think the biggest is I don't have anybody really telling me what to do. I just do what I want to do. This is mission-driven work, partly in the grand sense. Lita and everyone else I talk with at the site mentions their role in national security. It's a big-picture justification that I don't think you'd get if you were doing the same cooking and snow plowing in the normal world. But there's another mission, one that's a little more grounded and humble. Lita gets to take care of people who might otherwise be on their own. Before working at remote sites, she was a cook at a mental hospital called North Star in Anchorage. North Star was a trip. Um, when I worked, I first started working in the the older part, which was for the all the ages, and then when I went to the kids, well, the kids, some of it was sad. Um, some of them I'd bring to the kitchen and put them to work with me when they were good, or if they were bad and having a bad day, make them wash dishes or help me put up groceries. And some of them, I even got started letting them 
help cooking, you know, not getting around the stove and stuff, but letting them help and talking to them that way. But At the time, Lita's sons were teenagers, same age as most of the girls she was helping take care of. There was a lot of sad cases, behavior problems and abuse and everything else. So it was a little bit of everything. And more than, I, I don't think a kid should be treated that way. And that was probably the hardest part, was dealing with the way they, would, they had been treated, as bad as they had been treated. This care extended beyond work hours. Hers was the house where kids would gather. And if she got a call from a parent about a missing boy, chances were he was at Lita's house. Am I reading too far into things to think that going from an environment like that out to being around 150 to 400 other kind of lost boys in the military or young men is, is not too far a stretch? <laughs> not too. <laughs> it's sort of, yeah, not too at all. <laughs> Granted, some of them were a lot older, but yeah, not a whole lot. <laughs> when I first, <laughs> first started working remote, the station chief told me, he says, Lita, just treat all of the guys like they were kids, and you'll be fine. You won't miss your kids so much then. And actually, I still do today. Well, you saw me out there. I treat everybody like they're kids. Much, much quicker than I expected, it was time to go. Clouds had rolled in, and the pilots wanted to take advantage of a break that was heading our way, lest we risk getting stuck for the night. As much as I wanted to stay, there was a colonel who needed to get back to base in Anchorage, and he was my ride. We jumped into a pickup truck, sped down the muddy road, and flew off. Didn't you want to ask Lita more questions? I mean, you just met her, and it sounds like she was warming up to you. Oh, man, I, I had so many more questions. <laughs> uh, some of it was just, you know, specific to you know, myths and rumors that I'd heard, like, um, is it true that technicians at one of the sites pan for gold in Utopia Creek? Um, and, you know, is it true that some of the technicians hunt and trap their game? And have you ever cooked up that game? And then other stuff was really specific to Lita. Um, I-, I wanted to know a little bit more about how she grieved after her husband passed. And I wanted to know, you know, when she's really, really missing her grandkids in Anchorage, what what movie does she watch? Those are really, really good questions. If I have a question for you, since Lita's not here, it's, um, do you think you could do it? Live at one of the sites? Yeah. Could you make it? Oh, I, I think I could survive, but I don't, I don't think I would thrive. I think it's like asking somebody, you know, uh, about holding their breath underwater. Unless you're a fish, the right question really isn't, could you do it? It's how long would you last? Would you go back to find out? Oh, for sure. I would go back to Ramanzov, I would go to Barter Island, I would go to Spiravan, I would go to any of these places again. What's the first thing you would do once you got there? (laughs) Just try and last longer than three hours. You've been listening to Longline, a podcast exploring the human story from the wilds of Alaska. Our production team is myself and Zachariah Hughes. Our webmaster is Ben Matheson, and Vikram Patel is our editor, manager, and benevolent overlord. To see pictures of Kate Romanzoff and listen to other episodes from this podcast, visit our website, longline.org. Signing out from the land of true tall tales. Until next time, this is Longline. Longline.
I'm just throwing this all in so you can like choose what titles you want. Blech, I don't know. Okay. That's a few variations for you. <laughs> Hopefully I'm not making more work for you by being silly. Bye. Also, there's some weird audio at the end because I overwrote some of my just this is the end. Goodbye.